everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. We have here today James King from the Ella Baker Center, who next month in October we are honoring as uh, one of our Vanguard Justice Award winners. Welcome, James. Thank you. So, James, um, can you tell us your story? Like, uh, how'd you get here? Great question. Originally from the Midwest, uh, I was raised in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, and my family was one of the first Black families to, to start to move into the area. Um, I remember finding out later that when we first moved there, the community was about 90% white um, and just moving into like 10% black and other races. It's now the inverse of that. Um, But early on, on, especially in my teenage years, I was going through some things in the house and I was, you know, acting out in my neighborhood. And and when I stepped outside, it was criminalized. the police in, in Ferguson didn't see a young guy trying to figure things out or find his way. They they saw a young black male and all of the stereotypes and, and stigmas our society is attached to that. Um, I internalized that identity and started acting out in, in harmful ways for, for a number of years, cycling in and out of prison until the year 2004 where in Southern California, I was arrested and convicted under California's three strikes law. That year, there was a a ballot initiative on the, um, at the polls that if it would have passed, would have made me ineligible for a three strike sentence. I would have probably been sentenced to about five or six years. and for most of the, the summer, this ballot initiative was popular and looked like it would pass. Um, towards the end of the, just prior to November, uh, then gubernatorial candidate Arnold Schwarzenegger came out, made a series of commercials attacking this ballot initiative and was successful in, in defeating it. Um, that was my first taste of of civic engagement, democracy in action. And I remember feeling incredibly voiceless. Um, Fast forward a couple of years, I was in California State Prison, maximum security prison with a a 30 year to life sentence. And um, there were people on the yard who were 
writing letters to the editor about various bills and, and legislature that was in the works. And I started to see or think about and seeds started to be planted of ways I could engage even while incarcerated in the democratic process. And in 2016, uh, California voters passed Proposition 57, which gave California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation the, the um, authority to set time off rates for people who are currently incarcerated. I helped to organize a symposium at San Quentin State Prison that um, gave our thoughts as stakeholders in that system on what those regulations should look like. Um, and out of that began organizing and doing policy work while inside. Um, the end of 2018, Governor Brown commuted my sentence. Um, I was released one year later. Just prior to my release, uh, the Ella Baker Center was hiring for a position at the time, state campaigner. I interviewed while still incarcerated and unbeknownst to EBC on the um, exact same day that I found out I was officially getting out, they um, offered me the position. So that was a great day. Um, wow. uh, yeah, January 2020, I joined staff and it's and I've been working to get people free ever since. So kind of describe your journey, you know, from that maybe low point in 2004 to when you finally got released. What, what changed in your life during that time? I think one of the things that changed for me was I had become aware of something that I really had a hard time reconciling, which was that society had named that me and a lot of my peers is irredeemable and unworthy to ever possibly ever be in society ever again. But I lived, but the people I was living with were kind, they were nurturing, they were funny, like just full, well-rounded individuals um, who I built relationships with and learned to trust. And so just this notion of who's a criminal, like that we are that currently incarcerated people are captured in a moment in time and then um, whatever their, their act is considered as a static and they are never allowed to change or, or become more than that moment was something that I was really working to process and, and understand. Um, and like part of that was thinking about my own value and worth as a member of society. Should I have a say? As a person who had committed harm, should I have a vote? Should I be able to contribute to society? Should, should my peers? And so just that journey of understanding that um, I may have done harmful things in my past, but it's not because I'm a bad person. It's because I went through trauma. I did not have the tools to deal with that trauma. And as they say, hurt people hurt people. Um, as I healed, I realized that I and so many others had something to contribute to make a, this our communities a better place. And so I think that that was the main thing that, that changed for me. And was this a process or did like the light bulb come on one morning? It was very much a, very much a, a process. Um, 
I was trying to heal in a hyper-violent environment. And I say hyper-violent, um, I'm referring to state-sanctioned violence. Um, there are gun towers. The, there are staff members who are use intimidation and bullying as their predominant communication styles. There is um, There are strip searches and, and casual violence that occurs every day, all day by the state towards people who are currently incarcerated. And in that environment, I was trying to heal from and gain tools to process and deal with trauma that I'd been experiencing since my childhood. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, there were other people who were further along in the journey than me and, and really contributed and mentored me and helped me become the best version of myself in spite of the violence of the prison system. So what do you do now at the Ella Baker Center? Today, we work to pass legislation to reduce uh, California's over-reliance upon incarceration as a means of social control and to create alternatives um, and invest in communities. We believe that that community-based solutions and alternatives to incarceration will um, create safer spaces and, and more healthy spaces for people. So kind of walk me through like some of the things you do on your job now. One of the things that, that I do personally is, is work to pass legislation. So I'm a member of various coalitions and co-sponsor groups that are working, that have worked on legislation in the past, like Assembly Bill 292 in 2021, Senate Bill 875 this year, and uh, potential legislation next year to either enact sentencing reform, parole reform. Um, we were instrumental in the, the Racial Justice Act. But I also, in addition to that, I help manage the an inside-outside fellowship that we started in 2020, which um, pays currently incarcerated people to contribute to our policy work and to continue to contribute to the larger discourse on um, policies that impact people uh, who are system impacted. And, you know, I always feel like, you know, you're, you're giving and you're kind of getting back at the same time. Like uh, it, it's kind of this two-way street, right? You're kind of healing yourself as you're helping other people. Can you describe how that works for you? Sure. In 2020, I was a, a participant in the Stop San Quinn Outbreak Coalition. And as a participant in that coalition, I participated in a couple of state Senate hearings addressing the COVID outbreaks within the, the um, prison settings. And one incident that, that really highlights it for me is um, I was presenting, so was the then Secretary of the California Departments of Corrections and Rehabilitation. And I was able to 
directly address the secretary, bring in things that I had firsthand seen and things that I was hearing from people who were currently incarcerated at the time. Um, without the the specter of state violence hanging over my head. Um, I'll never forget, I, I love to write. And my first week out, I wrote something and I referred to my incarceration as captivity. And I remember shaking when I wrote it, trembling, because it was so difficult to say that, um, coming out of that, that specter of violence. Um, so being able to directly engage with people in law enforcement to advocate for uh, more humane policies, to, to take on an adversarial relation or, or adversarial role when, when helpful or to be supportive has been um, really impactful for my own healing. Um, and, you know, we covered uh, a lot of those San Quentin hearings uh, in court. Um, it was really appalling what happened there. Um, I, you know, and I'm sure you've spoken with a lot of people that, that were kind of stuck in that situation. You want to describe, you know, kind of the things that you learned uh, about what was happening there? I mean, the the main thing that I, I learned is that um, the California Department of Correction Rehabilitation is committed to growing and holding people captive no matter the cost. Um, San Quentin State Prison prior to the pandemic was constantly touted as this paragon of rehabilitation. They have tours every day in which they um, allow people to talk to currently incarcerated people. They highlight the number of rehabilitative programs they offer there. They talk a lot about rehabilitation, but when it, but when the rubber met the road, um, thousands of people were in, were infected. Dozens were dying. Hundreds were in the hospital. They closed ranks and said that people were too dangerous to release. Um, they ignored all science. They ignored all appeals to common sense and, and reasonable response. Um, because this is an organism that is committed to its own growth, no matter what. Um, that was my biggest, biggest takeaway. That, And the thing that I would add to that is for most people inside, nothing has changed. The prisons are still extremely overcrowded. There is still no little to no ventilation um, at a, in a prison in a building full of 800 people designed for 400. If three people become infected, the entire building is shut down. If a person tests positive, they're placed in the hole. Um, and people are still getting sick and people are still dying. Um, the, the, the diets are still incredibly horrible. People are fed on less than two dollars a day. Um, though the budget for each person is in the hundreds of thousands, um, most of that money goes to admin, goes to staff costs, but but not to actual welfare or well-being of of the people that they are incarcerating. I mean, among the things that were most shocking to me, of course, just the carelessness by which they they introduced uh, COVID to the facility in the first place. 
um, that, uh, you know, San Quentin had been okay. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, they did these transfers and, oh, uh, we'll, we'll just transfer people from uh, areas where they're having an outbreak to this area where they're not having an outbreak without testing them or anything. Um, yeah, what, what could go wrong, right? Yeah, and and I'll just add that you had people who were in no way equipped or trained to deal with this this medical crisis, making decisions um, throughout, and so they made a series of really poor, one could say, stupid decisions. Like at one point, they moved a lot of elderly people from less crowded areas into the into the most crowded housing units because they thought that it would keep them safer because they were it, those buildings were more enclosed we just didn't have the science and it wasn't a good decision um but in addition to that i'd say like that outbreak at that prison was inevitable because each and every day in eight-hour increments, hundreds of people, the staff, go in and out of the prison. So if it, this notion that, that prisons are, are somehow, like, are, are somehow impenetrable, particularly by contagions and viruses, is, is wrong. Like, people are going in and out of prisons in, in their work uniforms every day in, on their shifts. And so those the population there will always be vulnerable to outside um, public health crises. And the other really appalling thing, and, and I shouldn't say the other, but another um, was, you know, I was at one of the press conferences and they're basically just uh, have, um, you know, either formerly or, or uh, incarcerated people describing what they've heard and you know these guys are describing themselves in a letter as being as sick as they've ever been and they're giving them you know um one or two tylenol and and sending them back to their cell um or in some cases um they're putting them in like i don't know a gym or something and they put them on the floor or some somewhere i mean I, I mean, the conditions were just appalling. Yes. The, you know, I, I knew people who had been in, in prison since the 80s, and they said that this was the most scared that they'd ever, ever been, was, was during this. And to be clear, the, the prison didn't respond because the prison was overwhelmed. Um like normal society, we didn't know how to deal with this pandemic. They certainly were not in any way, shape, or form equipped to deal with what happened. In a matter of three weeks, San Quentin went from zero people infected to close to 3,000 people infected. Hundreds of people went to the hospital. And speaking of that, the outbreak at San Quentin overwhelmed the entire Marin County. Um, it wasn't just isolated to the prison. It was the entire community that was quickly overwhelmed because this prison was not prepared to deal with the pandemic. 
can't fault them for not being prepared. No one was prepared for this or could have seen this coming. However, what we can fault them for is never admitting they were overwhelmed, never admitting that they needed to decarcerate quickly and safely and responsibly in order to um, save lives. Yeah, um, and it seemed like they, I don't know if they intentionally made it worse, but uh, they may as well have intentionally made it worse for, for how poorly they handled it. Yes, they, just their their resistance to change, their resistance to recognizing the threat that was in front of all of them um, was was heartbreaking, and people died that didn't need to die. So moving forward, you know how does how does the COVID lesson? Uh, inform us on what we need to do going forward in terms of prisons. I think one of the one of the things that I gained clarity about from that organizing was we've often talked about incarceration and in in criminal justice reform in terms of morality and in terms of public safety, um, but actually it's it touches on so many things like public health, climate change. So it's important that we broaden the conversation. Um, it's important that, that we think about the impacts upon our climate of having these epicenters in our midst. It's important we think about the public health implications of having what turned into super spreader sites during the height of the, code, the, the pandemic in our communities. It's important we think about the economic impact. Um, for instance, um, the governor has been leading the charge to, to close prisons and the, the town of Susanville um, tried to, to oppose one of the prison closures um, because their economy is dependent upon incarceration. Um, so, how can we think about this in economic terms? How can we think about this in climate terms, in public health terms, um, and understand that um, this is much, so much more than merely um, criminal justice reform or public safety? And then, you know, how does this now inform your work going forward? I mean, the pandemic hit just after you left um and so this has been kind of your life and you've been thrown into a world that really didn't resemble the world that uh was before absolutely like on a personal level i, I can say my experience in 2020 was a lot different than most people's um majority of people felt a loss of freedom due to the shelters in place and the pandemic. I was, I experienced an increase in freedom. I was just coming out of prison. So sheltering place with streaming apps and computers and even cell phones just like felt, uh, didn't feel as stressful to me. Um, from an, 
from a community standpoint, from an organizing standpoint, I think that it informs my urgency. Um, we've become so desensitized to the extreme sentencing, the over-incarceration, the lack of resources in um, communities of color and the over-policing of those, those communities that um, we've created a normal that is very harmful to tens of thousands of people. And in the blink of an eye, that very shaky structure can be lit on fire. So it's important that, that you know, we deal with unhoused, we're helping unhoused people now before the next crisis erupts that um, makes it an urgent situation. It's important that we create um, systems for less policing and policing accountability now before the next um, incident of acute police violence occurs. Uh, it's important that we reduce our reliance upon incarceration as a means of social control before the next climate crises, public health crises, or anything else, um, because these systems are not sustainable. So going forward, you know, what do you see as kind of the focal point of your work and what you would like to accomplish? I think the focal point of my work is attempting to, to normalize access to currently incarcerated people as stakeholders in policies that impact them. I, as a formerly incarcerated person, am often treated as a proxy for currently incarcerated people. Um, and I don't think that that's right or fair. Um, I have a different set of class issues. Um, and I think that the more we can bring currently incarcerated people into spaces where they can advocate for themselves, contribute to the discourse about policies that impact them, the more we will be able to build healthy communities that are, are it not only helps them prepare to re-enter society, but it, it, it prepares society for them and, and it educates and lifts us all up. All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and, uh, and sharing a bit about your story and uh, some of the things going on and some of the great work you're, you're doing. Um, must uh, be a whirlwind still, um, you know, two and a half years later. Yeah, it's still, you know, I still have moments of, uh, like, I, the way I term it is I'm still in the glow. Like, I still feel the the, the appreciation for just the smallest things and gratitude for, for things that I now have access to that I was deprived of for so long. And uh, still feel very close and connected to people who are still experiencing that deprivation. Well, I look forward to uh, meeting you in person in a few weeks. And we will see you in uh, Sacramento. See you soon. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www. 
justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.